Welcome to the Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from the people, projects, businesses, campaigns, communities, and so on, who are striving for a more sustainable and progressive world. I call them the archipelagos of a possible future. You'll hear their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and hopefully you'll walk away with some actionable advice to start your own archipelago. Because what the world needs more than anything right now is more archipelagos of a possible future. So have a listen and join me. When you organize effectively in your neighborhoods, um, you start realizing that, you know, the enemy is not your neighbor who happens to, uh, you know, hold a different set of views from you um, or be impacted by uh, resource extraction in a different way that you are. Um, you know, the enemy is, uh, you know, frankly, the 100 corporations that the IPCC recently said are responsible for 71% of global warming. In this episode of the podcast, I talk with Adam Bailey of Dogwood, an organization based out of British Columbia, the province I call home, that is the largest network of organized voters that we have, 274,328 at this point, uh, along with 802 volunteers. In this first part of our conversation, we talk about how Dogwood organizes folks and how they help break folks out of their social media bubbles to work together. So, Adam, uh, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to participate in the Working Together podcast um, and uh, and representing Dogwood uh, and all the good work that Dogwood has done over the years. I like to start all my conversations off with people um, with a kind of sense of backstory and history, uh, get a sense of the history of the Dogwood Initiative in this instance, and understand how we've come to today with a number of successful campaigns under Dogwood's belt. Um, I'm sure that there's lots to talk about there in, in, in terms of what you guys have been doing over the years and what you've learned, uh, most importantly over those years. So if you're able to start us out with that, that would be great, Adam. Yeah, well, thanks, Stefan. And couldn't be happier to be speaking with you today. Um, again, you know, you and I have, uh, I've been a long-time listener of the podcast and a long-time fan of your work, um, going back to, I think, 2001, when we, you know, knew each other in uh, in undergrad and, uh, you know, studied Deleuze and Guattari together. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's been kind of fun to connect with you uh, back and forth over the years and run into you. Um, I think one of the most interesting uh, conversations that I that we had probably about five years ago, we were sitting in Habit Cafe, and you were talking about how you were interested in building a career that spanned all three sectors. You know, the uh, the not for profit, the governmental, and the private sphere. And it's been interesting to to watch you from afar as you sort of try to bridge those different gaps. For me, I've been stuck in um, in entirely in the trenches of the not-for-profit sector, and I don't think that's changing anytime soon. And so, you know, as a result, I feel like I have this really um, in-depth knowledge about what we're doing, and, and hopefully I can bring some of that to your listeners. 
Um, but I should start with, of course, Dogwood's story rather than my own. Um, and for those who don't know, um, Dogwood is, is BC's largest citizen advocacy organization. But we started um, back in 1998 as uh, a gathering of uh, First Nations labor and environmental community leaders on Bowen Island who came together in the aftermath of the war in the woods. And that was the big uh, standoff in Clackwood Sound, mm-hmm. where you know it seemed like there was a, a big zero sum game happening, right? Like if the if the loggers won, then the environmentalists would lose, and uh, if the environmentalists won, then the First Nations would lose, and and so you know we we really we had people who should be pulling in the same direction, you know, um, who really should be aligned together towards the idea of uh, sustainable use of our uh, forest resources in our province. Um, And the question was, you know, how do we get everybody on the same page? You know, um, after, you know, after waging this war in the woods, um, we Mm. knew that we could do it better. And uh, how do we get everyone on the same page? So um, out of that little sort of meeting on Bowen Island uh, came an organization called Forest Futures, um, Mm. which has gradually transformed into Dogwood. And uh, uh, realizing that, you know, the wins that we were able to have on the forestry front were great, uh, but there were larger battles coming at us, uh, mostly from the fossil fuel world. And so uh, mm-hmm. we got involved at an early stage in the uh, the Great Bear Rainforest and in the uh, Sacred Headwaters. Um, we definitely were a, a big force uh, fighting against the uh, Northern Gateway Pipeline that uh, was defeated in 2015. And we like to think that we were um, uh, certainly a piece of putting that on the political agenda. And, uh, you know, that generally has pushed us towards uh, a focus uh, not just on pipelines, but on tankers overall. And I think, you know, the big piece is, uh, you know, if our genesis was about, uh, you know, how do we give British Columbians more control over their forestry resources, um, when we start to think bigger, it scales up to how do we get British Columbians thinking more about um, our coast uh, and our land and who makes decisions about that. So, Mm Our big, uh, our big campaign these days, and, and has been for the last several years, is the No Tankers campaign, which mm-hmm. basically comes out of the idea that we don't ever want to see another Exxon Valdez tanker spill on our coast. Uh, we saw how that uh, was so destructive in Alaska. And, um, you know, without tankers, you, uh, or rather you can't have tankers without a pipeline. Um, and so that's why we've been so uh, ardent about uh, pipeline defense. And it turns out you can't have a pipeline without um, some really interesting politics going on in the background. So we've been doing a lot of work on trying to um, improve our democracy here in British Columbia. Uh, we were a big force behind banning union and corporate donations uh, and uh, donations about 1200 bucks, in fact. Uh, so banning big money um, in B.C. provincial elections and also municipal elections, which uh, we think is going to make a huge uh, difference to the way the politics works in our province. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also, uh, you know, one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to nail down this interview is that I've been full bore with the rest of my team uh, advocating for uh, proportional representation, which hopefully is really going to change our democracy for the better, too. So, you know, starting as an environmental group, but really turning into uh, a democratic action group in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks who lived in B.C. during the No Tankers campaign remember the uh, I think probably the most enigmatic thing, which was the little decals that Dogwood put on the loony. Yeah, the loony campaign. And then the, the, you know, the decals would find their way everywhere. There was tons of these loonies that had the notankers.ca decal on the loony, and it actually covered, for for non-Canadian listeners, the loony is uh, Canada's dollar coin, and it's got a loon on it, a bird, a loon, and the decal covered the loon in black, I guess to signify, um, you know, oil, right? 
Um, and then it had the notankers.ca link on it. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. But I, re I remember having many of those loonies uh, in my pocket, um, you know, throughout, I think, like the early uh, 20-teens and, and so on. That's that's when that seemed to be going on quite a bit. And yeah, I think that, that sort of thing, I mean, it was just indicative of, a, of Dogwood's different approach to organizing and campaigning and mobilizing people. Um, and I'm wondering maybe like if you could kind of talk a little bit about, about how Dogwood has kind of developed that over the years. Cause you, you you mentioned this history, right? And it's very interesting how you've gone from the logging piece and then it became the fossil fuel piece. There's been, uh, coal has been part of that story as well. Um, you know, there's, there's been other uh, things going on in the background uh, between some of these big campaigns around getting the vote out. I know you guys have helped out with that. And then obviously now there's the proportional representation piece. But there's lots of different things that Dogwood has done. And I feel like you guys have learned a ton over the years. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about kind of that learning through each of these different campaigns that you've had. For sure. And, you know, it, it's sort of been like a learning through doing. Yeah. Um, that's been the big and exciting piece about it. Um, it's interesting. You know, I've been uh, a supporter of Dogwood, a donor to Dogwood since uh, 2012, um, which, you know, yeah, really fits in with that time when we were uh, pumping the No Tankers uh, loony campaign really hard. Um, and it just sort of seemed like, you know, Dogwood was doing all the right things back then, you know, certainly from a, uh, the perspective of, um, I guess, an outsider or, or you know, someone who was uh, just becoming a, a part of the campaign, um, where, you know, they were really taking advantage of, um, uh, of email at that point and really taking uh, advantage of an online presence. Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, to sort of, I don't know, I mean, I hate this phrase, but at the same time, you know, to move fast and, and break things. Um, but, but you know, they were really, um, there was a lot of nimble um, nimble work there. And mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, I, you don't often see that in the not-for-profit world. Um, so it, it's, that has been a really interesting piece of the whole thing. But uh, maybe back to the volunteer bit a little bit. It's, it's the whole uh, dynamic um, has been, you know, scaling up from the concept of doing things. So one of the things that really, you know, and this adds to the agility factor, but also um, adds to sort of our success factor, has been um, really focusing on the hyper-local. Hmm. So Dogwood's organizing technique is, um, is about uh, organizing, uh, you know, at the neighborhood level, groups of concerned people who happen to share, uh, you know, share a set of concerns and share a set of actions that they'd like to take. Um, and it's, it's great that way because, you know, you end up meeting folks in your neighborhood who, you know, maybe you wouldn't have met uh, in any other way, and you're able to take action together because you share that set of shared values. Um, and, and then we sort of scale that up uh, from, you know, each individual sort of neighborhood node of maybe eight volunteers to, you know, a, a larger scale where we have, you know, over 800 active volunteers across the province um, and, you know, and hundreds of thousands of supporters who are being mobilized by those volunteers. So, but the trick is to do things. Um, you know, it's one thing to sort of, uh, you know, really win hard at the online game and collect hundreds of thousands of signatures for your petition. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, connect, collect hundreds of thousands of signatures for your uh, petition. And, uh, you know, and then you have this great email list, but you don't do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, nobody really engages with your emails when they send them out. Um, nobody's interested and actually taking action because you're not, you know, when the action time comes, you haven't done anything with them in nine months. You haven't so, stretched and done some kind of pre-exercises. Exactly. Right. right. You've always got to be willing to stretch the muscles mm. and 
And most importantly, you know, you need to be willing to inspire people to action. I think that's a big piece. Um, you know, people sign a petition because they want to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the trick is to come in there and give them something to do afterwards. So that's part of it, right, is that we have these, um, you know, we've got these sort of small teams uh, distributed across the province that then sort of scale up to a larger organization. And each one of those teams is focused on taking action. Um, so, you know, that action could be uh, getting together and, and going out to like a local community event and talking about, uh, you know, the no tankers issue in a really big way. Um, and that will involve uh, collecting more signatures, which then becomes more supporters and that, you know, becomes a virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also mean uh, that volunteer team getting together and uh, booking some time with their MLA or their MP um, to uh, actually go in and talk to the legislators about, or legislators, sorry, about the, uh, the big issues that are important to them. Um, and that's huge. I mean, when's the last time that you? sat down and talked with your MP? Well, in previous roles, <laughs> I, I have, uh, but that was at a staff level. Um, but yeah, exactly. There, I, I, I rarely go into constituency offices. Let's just put it that way. It's very, exactly. very and, rare. And I would... I would suspect that the majority of Canadians are similarly strangers to their constituency offices. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, that's like a fundamental tool of our democracy, right? If you, you have a problem with the way things are going, you're supposed to sit down and talk to the guy who makes the decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, uh, so that's a thing that often happens. Or a volunteer team will get together and they'll do a letter writing campaign. You know? So it's like, let all, let's all write letters to the editor today and, uh, you know, and make sure that uh, our, our perspective is, is contained within the local news media. Or further, people will organize a, a phone bank and go and, uh, you know, call through our supporter list, for example, and just, uh, you know, give you the, the, hey, how are you? I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what, you know, where things are at with tankers. If you'd like to take more action, you know, here's how you can get in touch with your uh, elected representative. So it's all about sort of trying to maintain these active volunteer nodes um, that are constantly getting out there and engaging with their community and engaging with their representatives in order to create that kind of democratic change. And that's where you sort of, you know, so you're, you know, you're hearing about fun stuff like the, uh, the Looney Secret campaign, but you're also hearing about um, stuff where we're, you know, trying to mobilize votes and, and whatnot. Um, and it's, it's by being able to do the smaller actions that we then have the tools in place to take the bigger actions when the time is right. This uh, this organizing model that Dogwood has, uh, I think it's shared by a lot of different organizations in the world uh, in this day and age, but I just think it's a really um, important one to underscore. Uh, this idea of, of kind of laying in wait, so to speak, for the opportunity or the right timing to mobilize people. Um, and there's, there's a bit of a... There's a bit of a difference between organizing folks and mobilizing folks, and it's a distinction that I was reading about the other day in a fantastic book called Analytic Activism, uh, which we don't talk about in this episode, but uh, I'll put the link uh, in the show notes. Um, David Karpf, I believe, is the author. But he, uh, at one point in the book, he draws this distinction between mobilizing folks and organizing folks, and it's helpful to look at this kind of work in that light. Basically, when you mobilize people, it's for uh, for something that's kind of a time-dependent action or a, um, a protest or a teaching or something like this. And organizing, on the other hand, is more kind of the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month activities that you do with your most engaged volunteers. Uh, and in Dogwood's case, 
that's largely uh, what they do, and they do a fantastic job of it. And you'll hear more about it in this next segment where we go into detail about how they do it. I, I love this idea of the nodes, and I, I think I've spoken to uh, other folks uh, who, who've worked in Dogwood in the past about this approach to organizing communities and neighborhoods and things like this. Um, and I, I, so there's a couple of things that I've noticed about it. One, I've, I've never had the opportunity really to participate in something like that before. I think because of the fact of where I lived, you know, sure, so, sure. I mean, there, I'm not trying to critique anything here, but I guess what I'm saying is Dogwood has limited resources, right? So it's not like these nodes are in communities all throughout BC. There's, there's a certain uh, strategizing around where these nodes are, um, where you guys kind of put a lot of your effort into helping to organize communities. Is there not? Oh, for sure. And I mean, and I'm glad that you sort of noticed that there's a strategy going mm-hmm. on um, because, yeah, you, you have to use your resources wisely. Um, and, you know, I suppose the natural constituency uh, that we found, or at least, you know, like as we've uh, deployed our organizing resources, we found a lot of resonance on Vancouver Island and in the lower mainland mm-hmm. uh, in B.C. Um, we've wanted to try to, expo- you know, expand into uh, the central interior and up into northern B.C. Uh, because these, of course, are communities that are affected in a very strong way mm-hmm. uh, by the kinds of issues that we're organizing around. And so, you know, we're always trying to... Uh, organizing partnership with them. Um, But, uh, you know, as we started exploring that, we realized, you know, there are actually lots of really great community-led efforts happening uh, up north in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, and also in the central interior. Um, You know, they're doing great work out there. Why should we go and, uh, you know, duplicate their effort? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, number one, disrespectful, and number two, a waste of our time and energy, uh, when we could instead have strong partnerships. And so, you know, we work with, uh, we work in partnership with a couple of great organizations in uh, different areas of the province. Uh, We also work as part of a bit of an umbrella group uh, called Organizing for Change that kind of does a lot of the, uh, the traffic traffic control between our different uh, organizations mm-hmm. and that way we're you know we're able to have like a, a province-wide impact um while really just sort of you know sticking in our turf and not uh, not getting in the way of everybody else doing the great work they're doing i guess yeah because it's the challenge of having um you know at, at least during the no tankers stuff uh, a lot of what was happening with that campaign was uh, it's about the coastlines it's about um, communities impacted by potential oil spills, things of this nature, right? Um, sure. and then with the pipelines, it, it does begin to go onto the interior a bit more, but uh, you know, I, I, I guess I was putting my hat on there of being the, the interior British Columbian who's, you know, kind of worked in forestry his or her whole life. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they might have, uh, concerns about this kind of stuff, but they're also trying to think about, uh, you know, their livelihood and things like this. And they're getting messaging yep. from, you know, f- uh, folks uh, who are more pro-industry and things like this, that that these sorts of environmental campaigns and things like this are going to, you know, ruin your chance for a job and blah, 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 all this <laughs> kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think what that hints at in many respects is the, how should I put this, the, the, the environment that Dogwood finds itself in, in the organizing work that it's doing. Um, we live in a day, I think, 
where the media system has changed so drastically, you know, compared to let's let's think back to the civil rights movement, for instance, where if there was a protest or a nonviolent action of some sort, it would be on the nightly news and the entire country would see it, right? Everybody mm. would see what was happening and they'd immediately know what was going on and the power of the nonviolent movement in those instances was coming from the fact that people were standing up against what on the news screens looked like brutal authority. Um, but in our day and age, we have, we have memes, we have blogs, we have, you know, we Ezra, have Ezra Levant. Yeah. We've, we've got all these, all these different voices clamoring to have some sort of, um, message that I guess, uh, people can gravitate towards easily. Right. Um, and so, I'm getting to a question. Don't worry. <laughs> so the thing that I've always wondered about in relationship to Dogwood's work is, you know, how do you deal with that gray area? Because a lot of what attracts people to the organization and gets people behind the cause is the kind of uh, let's mobilize around stopping this thing. Um, but then there's this next step, which is rather than stop, how do we go and what do we go on? And how do we mobilize and organize around going on something, right? Like on, on creating something different, a different alternative, so to speak, as opposed to just stopping sure. something. Sure. And so you're sort of thinking, you know, how do we take that, uh, you know, that next step to uh, organize a new, um, you know, organize our economy, for example, in a better way that really is, you know, producing these productive outcomes. That, yeah, that has a place for people across the spectrum. Right. That allows them to see, OK, you know, there's some serious environmental consequences around the way we've been doing things for the past century. Uh, and, you know, scientists are getting nervous <laughs> and a lot oh, of people yeah. are getting nervous. Right. <laughs> and so we got to do something differently. Right. Um, and and creating a campaign or a way of talking about that that can uh, activate people across the divide, so to speak. And yeah. uh, rather than kind of stopping something, but trying to kind of create uh, a new vision or something like this. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I mean, in, in some ways built into the DNA of the organization, right? Like, I mean, we started as a response to, um, you know, this impasse where, you know, people sort of thought, well, you could be a, you know, pro logging or you could be pro tree hugging and you, you know, there was no middle ground in there anywhere. Um, where, you know, whereas really what we should all be is, is pro sustainable forestry. Um, you know, with, with all of the different ways that, uh, that you can sustain a community off of that. Um, you know, and I would say the same thing basically for the entire climate movement. You know, it's not like we're uh, not so much that we are, you know, against the tar sands as we are um, pro-sustaining our, our, our whole ecosystem uh, and, and all of the beautiful economic benefits that come from that um, over a timeline that's greater than, you know, the next hundred years. Um, and, you know, there's whatever, we get down to talking about like, oh, well, you know, if they build that uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, it'll be 2,500 jobs. Sure, for six months, 12 months, 24 months, uh, but then those jobs, uh, you know, dissipate, and you're left with uh, arguably about 30 or 35 uh, full-time permanent jobs uh, available to that whole thing. And I feel like that ends up being, you know, sort of the way that the argument always goes, right? It's like, oh, well, there'll be all these jobs attached to the whole thing, mm -hmm. but... Um, 
you know, but ultimately at the end of the day, um, you know, they're temporary and they'll go away and then we'll have to, you know, come up with some other project somewhere else uh, to, you know, to sustain that level of employment. Whereas, you know, we could look at a thousand different uh, ways that people uh, make a livelihood off of uh, the environmental benefits that we enjoy around here. Mm-hmm. So, but that's starting to get a little bit off topic of the original bent of the question, which was, you know, how can we, how can we talk about um Building a movement that speaks to um, all British Columbians um, about building that uh, that forward-thinking narrative um, in a day and an age where everything is so segmented and micro-targeted, and I, I got to tell you, Stefan, that is like the number one question we're asking ourselves here in the <laughs> office. You know, this is this is adaptive management that's at its fullest, where we're you know we're seeing that that clearly is the environment we're stuck in, um, and how do we respond to that in this world? Um, it's a tricky question because, you know, we're we've been effective in building, um, uh, you know, building a uh, um, narrative um, and building an audience for that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and and it's interesting because we've been effective in that sort of during the time that uh, social media has sort of, you know, uh, eclipsed traditional media. I think I'll, I'll use that phrase. Um, and so, you know, they've adapted to us having our narrative and having our audience and having that conversation. Um, but then but then we live just within that little bubble sometimes. And trying to figure out how to surpass that bubble is a really interesting question. Uh, what's interesting is that, of course, you know, on the oppositional side, there are other people bu- building their own audiences with their own narratives in their own bubbles. And, it, and I feel like that's, in a lot of ways, really destructive to um, the civil discourse, if there is such a thing, right? Um, the idea that really you could have, you know, maybe five different realities, um, you know, layering one one on top of the other that are all having their own internal conversation. And none of them are really fully aware of what the other conversation is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, not really aware of where the constructive overlaps are in there. Right? I'm sure we're talking about a lot of things that people care about um, who happen to be part of a different conversation, but we don't necessarily know how to tap into their bubble. And so mm-hmm. that's a big strategic piece that we put a lot of effort into uh, into trying to figure out over the last year at least. Um, and, you know, we're really rallying some strong resources around trying to uh, continue to crack that puzzle over the next couple of years. It seems like a big a big piece around it is shared values, you know, mm. uh, mm-hmm. is, is beginning to articulate and understand uh, shared values between people who might hold alternate political beliefs. Uh, or alternate religious beliefs, or or what may have you, um, as as a first step, and then almost as a second step, uh, and this is me coming from a background and being a policy analyst and a policy wonk within government. Um, uh, the flip side is, okay, how do we how do we then work with those values against principles that we all agree on, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, such as precaution, for instance, right? Like the, the, we've we've been kind of thinking about these for for decades uh, within the environmental movement, but there's also principles uh, within the environmental movement that overlap with other movements as well. Um, fairness, uh, justice, all there's so many yes. overarching principles yes. that people can can come to agreement on um, and begin having a conversation about how their views can shift a little bit, right? And mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I bump into this every time I go online and I, I do like, uh, 
you know, a search for Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Um, mm, and, yeah. And then I find people on the left using Saul Alinsky's book, and then I find people on the right using his sure. book, too. And each each side is kind of vilifying the other, like, oh, this is what we need to do, and we need to get in their <laughs> face and do this thing. And, you know, if, if, if only, like, we could mobilize ourselves enough to do, to do this and to do that. So from Dogwood's perspective, do you guys see yourself in the middle of a cultural war that's happening right now? Or do you see yourselves as trying to figure out a way to knit things together? Yeah, absolutely. The, the latter. Um, and, we, we, you know, we've had a really um, you and I clearly have been thinking the same things despite our distance over the last six months, because we're, we're definitely engaged in exactly that conversation right now. Um, and, you know, and I think the real problem in the thinking on both camps um, in both camps is, um, you know, if we organize ourselves, we will defeat them. And that's not um, that's just not how it works. You know, it's not like, okay, so we're just going to get a numerical advantage in our audience and we will then crush our foes um, and our audience's views will become everyone's views. Um, that's, I mean, I mean, come on, that's like vaguely fascist thinking. We can't, we can't um, do that. What we have to do is, uh, is recognize the diversity of uh, opinions in, within our democratic polity and we need to come up with messaging that actually connects with everyone. Um, and that's one of the, you know, one of the big things. When you talk about sort of, you know, like a, a fairness narrative or a justice narrative, um, that's exactly what we're trying to figure out how to establish in such a way that um, people on the other side of the overlap will get it and will understand. We've become really, really good at speaking to ourselves, um, which is to say sort of left-ish, um, green-ish, uh, or at least, you know, environmental-ish, hippie-ish, um, well-to-do-ish folks um, in Vancouver Island and the Lower Mainland, we're good at talking to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, we're not necessarily good at talking to uh, people who, um, who might understand an argument about environmental fairness and environmental justice, um, who live in a different region and who have a different perspective on that. And so how do we build a narrative that reaches out to them? Um, and we've done some polling work on that kind of stuff, and it really has come down ultimately to, um, to the idea of fairness and justice. Is it fair that um, a I, Texas I oil company? Head, not even. <laughs> oh, totally. Not even well, well, no, that's great. That's exactly it, right? Like, I mean, this is the way forward. You know, you got to pitch it to um, to a working, you know, to like a you know someone who works in the resource sector. Is it fair that um, you know your work can be tenuous? Um, you work uh, really long hours, uh, and uh, you know the, the work can be dangerous and hazardous, uh, and it's not always dependable. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are leaving this province um, so that a bunch of uh, Texas executives can be uh, taking a payday. I don't think it's fair. I think most people would uh, would also agree that it's not fair. Um, you know, but that's a way to talk about resource exploitation um, mm -hmm. that doesn't talk about. Is it fair that you know the Vancouver Island marmot is going extinct? Because you know, not everybody cares about that, um, and we need to, you know we need to recognize that not everybody cares about the same things that we care about, um, and we need to find the places where we do have that caring overlap. And that's the thing that we're really, um, really sort of trying to figure out how to um, uh, how to lead in that space of uh, of building a narrative. I just I love that caring overlap. Bit that, it's the carrying overlap. Yeah, that is yes, it. Yes, that that's that's exactly it. Finding a place where <laughs> you know there's a little bit of overlap in terms of the things we care about, 
because that's that's just it one region is going to care about one thing another region is going to care about another thing um that that is incredibly local and and does not does not translate over distance very well right mm -hmm. like the marmot mm -hmm. for instance an albertan is going to be like i don't i don't care about yeah your marmot <laughs> um but i do care about fairness i do care about a sense of you know uh, of justice for my society for canadian society for me and my fellow workers and their families and their communities exactly and, and that kind of bigger picture uh, thinking can take you also beyond just the the spatial and temporal horizon of now as well, which I think is where the environmentalists are really, right now, they're trying to pull people into that worldview of like, okay, there is the now, there is, there is that sense of fairness and justice now, but there's this bigger sense of fairness and justice, which is, you know, beyond our generation and into the generations and generations and generations and so on into the future right and that's really a big piece that's that's really hard i think it's really hard for people to to get behind and i i still you know i still struggle to to understand how that how that can how that can happen but i'm going to go back to something you said uh about teams taking action and kind of going to events and and maintaining nodes and things like this sure do you feel like there's any any learning from that approach that you guys have had to organizing communities because i think it's been done very well uh, you know like i think that you guys have not only mobilized people online but it's that flip side it's mobilizing or organizing or both you've done the organizing as well which is going into communities and making people have a sense of ownership over the issue and over what's mm -hmm. to be done next. Do you feel like there's a model from that that could be transposed to this, this other bigger problem that I think many societies are now facing right now around resource exploitation versus jobs and things of this nature? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's, that's a big piece of it. Um, and I'd like, I'd love to be able to export it in one way or the other, but it, it's, it's funny because it's, um, it's about the hyper-localization about it. You know, I mean, you, you sort of s s put it right there in the question. Um, it's when you organize effectively in your neighborhoods, um, you start realizing that, you know, the enemy is not your neighbor who happens to, uh, you know, hold a different set of views from you um, or be impacted by uh, resource extraction in a different way that you are. Um, you know, the enemy is, uh, you know, frankly, the 100 corporations that the IPCC recently said are responsible for 71% of global warming. Um, you know, the, the enemy are the, uh, the boards of directors of these corporations who are um, scandalously, um, uh, you know, scandalously divorced from all sense of justice um, for the billions of people who are going to have to live with their poor decisions and their, uh, you know, their profit taking. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when you, when you start to deploy that in the sense of neighborhood organizing, you know, and really getting people to come together and talk about like, okay, so what is the issue that we're facing in our community? Um, and how can we build power together in order to fix that issue? That's when you start, you know, building those bridges that are going to allow us to work together to, um, you know, to oppose the real factors that need to be changed in our society. And, and yes, I would love to see that model, um, you know, scaled up literally globally. Um, you know, we're not going to be the organization to do it, uh, but anyone who 
would like to, you know, start doing something like that in your own neighborhood, like, please, I, I encourage you fully to begin as soon as you can. Um, and what you actually want to do is start reading uh, Gans, whose, uh, whose work we um, borrowed from heavily when we started this new engagement organizing model. Um, that's, that's really the place to get started. If you could see me, I'm doing a little drummy dance. Okay, that was part one of my conversation with Adam. Stay tuned next week for part two where we dive deeper into their process and talk about distributed leadership. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash working together. Your monthly contributions help make the show a sustainable thing. And the best part about it is that you get to join a global community of fellow change makers, an online community of practice, so to speak, for making awesome stuff happen in your communities. Because I don't just want you to listen to these stories, I want you to make your own. Join me. <laughs>